Today's Bible reading comes from Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, and we're going to read through to chapter 3, verse 9. And if you're following on in the, in the Blue Bibles, page 1168, starting at verse 11. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among sinners. Doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So again I ask... Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? So also Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Well, uh, thanks very much, Leah, and good morning, everyone. If we haven't met, my name is Matt, and it's great to have you with us here this morning. Where the, it's always uh, great to see our regulars uh, back with us as this new school term gets underway for many of our households. We are in week two of a six-week series on the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians. And if you missed uh, last week, I'd recommend catching up online as the first sermon in the series often uh, sets the course a little bit and uh, it was certainly one we got uh, plenty of encouraging feedback uh, on. 
After wrestling with this passage, though, for most of this week, I want to be uh, the first one to say up front, it's a bit of a tricky one and there's lots of stuff going on. But also it's tricky in terms of its application to us. I think always once you've got your head around a certain part of the Bible, whether it be a chapter or a few verses, I think all of us need to ask the question, well, so what for us? How does this passage apply? I often think in two categories. How does this passage apply corporately to us as a church and how does it apply to me personally? As a preacher, when I find a passage hard to apply, I often have to listen to a sermon or two, or in this week, even three, from some people I really look up to for some inspiration. And unusually this week, it didn't really remedy this situation much for me. I felt like the applications might have been just a little bit of a stretch. They weren't untrue in any way, but I thought it didn't really cut where the passage seemed to be going. So after more prayer, and you might have seen the request for prayer in the weekly update on Thursday, you always know what's happening in my week when you see that tacked on uh, to the weekly email, Um, uh, the thought came to me uh, on something that I read in a book on preaching uh, many years ago. Now this is not a rule by any stretch, but it's just a helpful way to think about application for us when you're seeking to apply a passage. Uh, The author said it's good to look for three types of applications from a passage. Firstly, to ask, are there any possible applications you can see? And by possible, I think things that this passage reminds us of, that are helpful from to think of uh, flowing out of the passage, but perhaps not the main point of where it's going. The second one is to think, are there any necessary applications? Because there always, I would say, there always is a necessary application of any passage to us, things that must be stated once discovered with as much confidence and passion as you can muster. And thirdly, are there any impossible applications in this passage that need to be refuted? Applications that are really unhelpful, untrue, that some or indeed many might gravitate towards if they're not clearly refuted from the sermon. So today I thought we'll approach this slightly tricky passage and I'll show a bit more of my working uh, on how we've arrived at these applications for us, uh, the possible, the necessary and the impossible, in hope that it'll actually be helpful for us all, whether we're trying to read the Bible better for ourselves as we prepare to teach our kids or lead a community group, but also for you as a listener to sermons in church or someone who's seeking to be a more helpful contributor in your community group so that really together we can all grow in how to apply the Bible well together. Because I don't know about you, I suspect this is true of most of us, I really dislike sermons or studies where you feel like it's been just a a long slog of a a Bible commentary with just a few points of reflection tacked on the end. I think application that kind of cuts with the grain, sort of the necessary application of the passage is really where it's at. I think it's sometimes helpful to consider the possible applications in a very open way, acknowledging they're dealing just with the possible but also sometimes when you come across it, thinking through what the impossible application of this passage is and to spend time thinking why it's such a bad application uh, is a great thing to do. So that's how we'll approach it today. And as always, it'd be great to have your Bibles open in front of you. And if you've got the blue ones there, we're on page 1168. 
And like always, we have a bit of work to do first understanding what's going on before we can apply this to us. There's room to take notes in your leaflets if that's helpful for you. And you'll see I've broken up there the passage into three sections today. The first is verses 11 to 14 of chapter 2. So as you're flicking there, I'll just uh, remind you where we're at. Last week we saw that there is one true gospel, the good news of Jesus, that is not from this world, it is God-given, revealed by God and confirmed by all the apostles that Jesus gave himself for our sins, chapter 1, verse 4, to rescue us from this present evil age according to God's will. God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead to whom be all glory and honour and praise. We saw that anyone who tampers with this gospel is to be under God's curse because salvation for the nations is at stake and only the true gospel saves. This is really important stuff. So as we come to today's passage, we've just concluded, if you weren't here last week, that all the apostles agree on this. They've confirmed Paul's charge to preach this gospel. They've extended the right hand of fellowship to him. And the apostles who witnessed Jesus' ministry firsthand, like Peter, added nothing to this message, this gospel message from Paul that he'd been proclaiming uh, for almost a couple of decades uh, by that point. And sometime after this, and this is where we come into today, Peter comes to Antioch. Now, Antioch was kind of the epicenter at the time of the gospel going out to the non-Jews, the Gentiles. It's actually the place we're told in the book of Acts that Christians first kind of got that name. Followers of Jesus were first called Christians. Such kind of was its kind of epicenter nature. And as Peter came there, you can imagine Peter, you know, this great pillar, you know, upon this rock I will build my church, Jesus to Peter, comes down to see what's going on in Antioch here. He engaged with these new believers. They shared meals together. They may have, uh, may have included communion at points too. And all was well. But, as we read in today's passage, when certain men came from kind of home base, the Jerusalem church, who we are told the content of what they were teaching in Acts 15 verse 1, if you're taking notes, but I'll read it to you. They were teaching the believers that unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. We're told that Peter withdrew and began to separate himself from the Gentiles because, verse 12, he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Now, that would make a, an interesting fifth night on our life series as people uh, in, uh, work out who uh, Jesus is and want to give their lives to him if that was the case, if we uh, held to this teaching. And I, I thought it was, uh, of course, a long dead teaching that didn't really apply to us, but as is always the case, someone uh, found out in community group this week, there is a group on the internet you can find who do teach, you need to follow Jesus and uh, then for the guys uh, to be circumcised. Um, I, yeah, well, let's move on. Now, <laughs> to zoom out for a little context, the Jews up until this point in Jesus, uh, up until Jesus' life, death and resurrection had been living under the Old Testament law, a law that regulated daily life and had many facets to it and we'll look more at its function amongst the Jews next week. 
But it did call for the circumcision of man. It also had many cleanliness and food laws attached to it that actually made it impossible uh, for a, a devout Jew to go and eat in a Gentile home because they would then become unclean and not uh, able to approach God until they were cleansed. And there were many feasts and special days to observe too. These are all things that are, are pointed out to us uh, in Galatians. So this circumcision group were saying, if you're going to call a group something, you might as well go by the most memorable name. This uh, circumcision group were saying that you need to do all of this too. In addition to believing in Christ, you need to do all of these things to be saved. Now, given we've just seen that all the apostles, including Peter, had all confirmed Paul's gospel about Jesus, which didn't include any of this, it, that uh, Paul's gospel was complete, they added nothing to his message, this is a gross distortion of the gospel. It's false teaching. And Peter knew that. He didn't kind of suddenly forget uh, what they'd all uh, agreed upon. So Paul openly confronts Cephas, Peter as we know him, with the charge very publicly then of being a hypocrite, as his beliefs about the gospel did not line up with his actions. And he does this in front of everyone. Can you imagine the, the kind of stoush, the two biggest pillars of the churches that was established uh, post-Jesus, kind of coming together in such an open confrontation like this? Paul calling Peter a hypocrite in front of everyone. But he did this because, as we're told in the passage, other Jews began following his lead. Even Paul's very dear ministry apprentice, Barnabas, was led astray by this hypocrisy as well. So this is very serious, because even though Peter knew the truth of the gospel, fear of man led him to deny it in his actions. Because even if he said in private, you know, oh, you, you don't really need to be circumcised and follow the food laws and mark the festivals, by withdrawing from eating with the Gentiles, he's in essence saying, you are not acceptable to us, and by extension, if you can't fellowship with us, clearly you're not acceptable to God either. I don't think anyone could logically hold the position that, oh yeah, you're acceptable to God, but not to us. That's clearly not going on here. So his actions are denying an important truth of the gospel. So there's a misalignment between Peter's beliefs and actions, which denies the gospel, and others are following his lead. Hence, it's very serious. Therefore, the kind of heat as Paul kicks off in this part, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Very strong language. So the necessary application for us is when the gospel is at stake and people are following this false teaching, either explicitly or through people's actions, and it's not all lining up with the gospel, we need to be prepared to call it out publicly to condemn false teaching, to be prepared to suffer and not simply be people pleasers who do all this all kind of quietly in a back room, but instead step forward and serve Christ and his gospel. As we saw illustrated last week from chapter 1 verse 10, not to be people pleasers, but to serve Christ and his gospel. Then in terms of possible applications for us, I think there's a few and I'll share just one. This issue of being pressured to submit to the Jewish law isn't sort of a current one for many of us, as I said. So in many ways, this is kind of a unique situation at the time, hence why this falls into the category of a helpful possible application. 
I think Christian communities always need to be careful not to erect barriers between us and those who, for whatever reason, might feel that they're different from us, whether it's racial or any other social distinction that our world subtly makes. Because if we do imply, or even worse, explicitly state that people aren't acceptable to us, we're saying, too, that they're not acceptable to God. So we are a church of a certain dominant demographic. We're largely Anglo. We have a higher percentage of people than the uh, general population who've been university educated. We kind of dress in a certain way. There's a certain vibe you get when you walk in here. And none of those things are inherently bad. But we do need to be careful not to unwittingly exclude anyone. I heard of a testimony given in another Trinity Network church in recent weeks from a guy who became a Christian and then started looking for a church. I don't know the details of how he became a Christian. God was obviously at work in his life. But he was a former hardcore drug addict, loads of tattoos, and for many reasons might stand out from us if he was sitting here in church today and also the Trinity church that he attends now. And in a loving way, and with his permission, when he was sharing his testimony up front at church, he was asked, well, you know, do you feel uncomfortable here, and and why did you decide to join us? His answer was that after becoming a Christian, he looked around for churches for about six months, and at the end of each service, he'd duck outside quickly for a seat. And without fail, he would see someone approaching him who would come up and ask him to stop smoking and that he really should give it up because it's so bad for your health, clearly. (laughs) But he said, when I came here, I enjoyed the service, a bit longer than I was used to, but I rushed out afterwards to have a cigarette. A couple of guys are approaching. I thought, I know how this is going to end. But to his surprise, they just started talking to him. They were interested in him as a person and they welcomed him. So he stayed, and he's now a much-loved person in that church now, expressing his love for Jesus and for his church family in many ways others never would have thought of for the great glory of God. Now, that's a positive example, but I wonder how often those kind of stories end differently and we just never hear of them because people come, they don't feel they can be part of the place, so they don't stay. I was sorely tempted to call this sermon Passive Smoking for the Gospel uh, to make the point. (laughs) But I don't think it's good practice to name sermons after possible applications, hence a uh, different name. Because I don't think this is the necessary application of the passage, drawing from exactly where it's going. I think it's more of a a side one, helping, uh, hence a different sermon title. But I think it's a possible one for us to think through and reflect on together. Before we move on then uh, to the next part of the passage, I just want to point out uh, something from Peter's writings at this point, given this is probably one of the biggest stouches between the two leading apostles that we have in the New Testament. I just want to take you quickly to 2 Peter 3, and it will come up on screen, thanks Marcel, Uh, 2 Peter 3 verses 15 and 16, I'll just read it to you. We're after sort of explaining the gospel, 2 Peter 3 is one of Peter's last writings uh, towards the end of his life where he writes, bear in mind that our Lord's patience, it means, you know, Lord's uh, patience in sending Jesus back, means salvation. Just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all of his letters, speaking in them of these matters. 
His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Now, I raise that to point out two things. That even after one of the biggest, most public, most serious confrontations in all of the New Testament between Peter and Paul, these two great pillars of the church, Peter, at the end of his life, refers to Paul as his dear brother. It's a great model to follow that everyone who is wise should appreciate that when we get corrected when we've gone in some way wrong and someone puts us back on track, they are a dear brother or sister in Christ for us. That should be true for small matters, but Peter here is illustrating it on a big matter of being called out publicly for denying the gospel and his actions. That's a great example of humility and gospel conviction from Peter. Another possible application for us. But second point to note, Peter says he finds some of Paul's writings hard to grasp, which is an excellent segue into our next section, which I think is particularly tricky. Verses 15 to 21 of chapter 2. And you can ask all your tricky questions on bits I don't cover via SMS. Nine o'clock have already done so. And uh, we'll answer them just after the sermon. I think amongst all the tricky things, what is abundantly clear from this section, even to the casual reader, is Paul is saying we are justified before God only by faith in Jesus. You cannot be justified before God by an adherence to the Old Testament law. Three times he states it in verses 15 and 16 and once more in verse 21. We are only justified through faith in Jesus Christ. The term justified is at its core a legal term. It's the opposite of condemnation that comes from being declared guilty for something. So to be justified then, the opposite of that, is to be declared not guilty, innocent or righteous. Now, those titles we are not deserving of. And actually, before God, we're ill-deserving of that title because of our sin. But as an act of great kindness and grace from God, through Jesus' death on the cross for us, God puts a sinner right with himself, not only pardoning or acquitting us, but accepting us and actually treating us as righteous, as John Stott puts it. This justification by faith in Jesus is at the core of the gospel of Jesus. This passage here shows us how important this was to Paul. It is great news for our whole world that there's a level playing field for every person on the planet. Anyone who upon hearing this gospel message and placing their trust and faith in Jesus can be justified declared innocent, not guilty, righteous before God through faith in Jesus. What's the impossible application of this, however? Well, I think, it, uh, I think I come across it all the time and it needs to be clearly refuted. And it's the idea that if I'm justified by faith in Christ alone, it then doesn't matter how I live. I've got my ticket to, he- to heaven I can live however I want. We've just been told we're justified by faith in Christ alone. I think I see it a lot in um, uh, youth as they grow into young adults who sort of say to mum and dad, oh, yeah, you know, I've been to church, I understand Jesus, I trust in him, I just don't need anything uh, more from God. Now I don't need to go to church, I don't need you telling me that there's more to the Christian life than that. 
I think another space we see it uh, in many cases is in marriage, where uh, sometimes it's the case where there's kind of someone who gets who Jesus is and lives for him more than uh, their partner. And the partner's happy to come along to church occasionally, happy to nod along in sermons about uh, justification by uh, faith alone, but who clearly sees there to be no need whatsoever to live any differently from their unbelieving friends, neighbours and colleagues. I want to say such a thought would be absolutely abhorrent for Paul. And as such, I think it's the impossible application of this passage that needs to be clearly refuted. So let's start with verse 19, where Paul says, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live for God. Paul knows that the law only declared him guilty. It condemned. But now that Jesus has rescued him through faith in Jesus' finished work on the cross, he now stands justified before God. And he has a whole new purpose now to live for God. He realises that his bond to Jesus, his union with him, so intertwines him with Jesus that he can say, verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. We do not live with the gospel plus the burden of the Old Testament law. We do not live with the legal status of justified before God by faith in Jesus with a life that is then unchanged or indistinguishable to those who do not believe. Instead, it is the gospel of Jesus plus Jesus living in the heart of every person he has justified before God through the Holy Spirit, which is where Galatian then turns as we edge into uh, chapter 3, setting us up for chapters 5 and 6 a little bit later on in Galatians. And to zoom out from this passage to the grand sweep of the Bible, our new status before God has corporate implications. As I preached on uh, membership last year, uh, back in February, you can look it up on the website if you like, we saw across the Bible in a very noticeable pattern that as God judges people, as God condemns, whether it's a, a person, tribes, nations, he scatters people. And he not only disconnects them from himself, but he disconnects them from others. Yet as God saves, however, he gathers. We're called to participate in the people of God. We're gathered into a family of believers for a purpose together, which is why I think it's very clear from Scripture every believer should join and actually love a local community of believers, a church like ours, and live out these purposes together. While that's a true enough thought, it's beyond the scope of this passage, but I did want to point out that it has corporate implications before we talk about the personal. What then is the necessary application we need to make? And before we apply it, I think I'll just point out, we're going to leave the last section of today's uh, reading for time's sake, because the uh, themes that it brings up we'll cover off in later sermons, as it introduces this theme of living by the Spirit and the contrast that is uh, by living by the flesh that develops through the rest of the letter, as well as God's great gospel plan, always having been for the nations that anyone can become an inheritor of the great promises God first made to Abraham. So then, the necessary application for today is to know that this declaration of being justified before God isn't simply a change 
in legal status. We don't just sort of think it's the sum total of the gospel to think, oh great, I've avoided hell now and I'm going to heaven, back to living for me. It's a whole of life change, being relationally connected to God through Jesus so that we might now live for God with Jesus at work in us. We'll see how beautiful and challenging that is to live by the Spirit of God in our world today as we press on in this series. But for now, note that this whole of life change is fueled by a deeply personal and intimate knowledge that Jesus' death on the cross was for us. Paul can say in the second half of verse 20, the life I now live in the body I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus' death is on... On the cross is central to this whole book, central up until this point and as Paul winds up for a new direction in uh, chapter 3, he says to the Galatians, before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was very clearly portrayed as crucified. The Galatians weren't there at the cross, neither was Paul. But the gospel was proclaimed with enough clarity to clearly portray the crucifixion, its centrality, what it meant that Jesus gave himself for you and for me personally. Paul can say, Jesus loves him dearly. He can proclaim it to the Galatians, and I would say we not only need to know that, but we need to really feel it as well. Some of you, of course, might not know that. If you're here just checking out who Jesus is, we're so thrilled you're here. And we'd love to help you understand that and trust in it. Just when you get the response cards a bit later, just tick the I'd like to find out more about Jesus box and we'll be in touch. Or you can come up and have a chat with me or Cam or uh, the person who brought you uh, after the service. But for the rest of us, we do already know this truth. We do feel it, although I'd say sometimes more and sometimes less. But I would say each of us would benefit from knowing it and feeling it more. The Word of God declares it to you this day. It is the necessary application of this passage for each one of us. And for some, we might kind of connect with that or express it in different ways. For some, it might be the great joy of very uh, openly singing with great passion, a well-chosen song that allows us to respond to God's Word. And if that's you, we've got a cracker in a minute that declares uh, the gospel, God's love for us, God's love that he's poured down from the cross for us and that Jesus lives in us today by the Holy Spirit. It is one of our goals for this year, actually, to kind of lift the passion and the adoration that we have for Jesus in all sorts of ways, including how we respond to God's word in song. So I'd encourage you as you get your head around the next song to sing it with great heart. But it's also worth acknowledging that we're all not outwardly expressive people and that's okay. For some of us, it is a quieter, more internal reflection on God's word through the week that will help us get there. It might be writing down the main point of this sermon on your response card and sticking it on the fridge this week. Whatever it looks like for you... We should not be unmoved by this truth. We should not be able to be cold to it. 
We should ponder over it, rejoice in it. And I would also say from time to time it should overwhelm us as well as we consider Jesus' great love for us and that he gave himself for us. We're all different. I find the clearest clearest appreciation I often get of it is not when I think I'm doing well in the Christian life, but actually when I stumble and fall in sin. At that moment, as the burden of living as a sinner in a broken world feels its heaviest, to actually ponder then what it means and to realise that Jesus loves me personally and gave himself for me so that I might be justified before God through faith in him. To actually know that and feel it at that heaviest moment of appreciating my sin, that Jesus actually knows everything about me, my past sins, my present ones and my future, yet he loves me and he gave himself for me. That's just a a truth that is wonderful to ponder and not only to know, but to actually feel. I'm a uh, fairly visual person with an active imagination. And when I'm feeling lost or I'm distraught over my sin, it was kind of an image, I don't really know where it came from, but it just burned itself in my mind probably well over a decade ago. It's just this image, and I, and I take myself there in my mind's eye. I see Jesus on the cross. The sky is dark, as it was when Jesus was breathing his last. It's dark. Wind is blowing. The ground is rocky. Actually, in many cases, you might think this is a fearful image in many ways, but I don't find it so. In this image, I just walk up to the cross, lay down, and curl up at the foot of the cross, with Jesus there and as I do so I feel completely safe and completely loved because Jesus was not there on the cross as a helpless victim of circumstance but he was there as a powerful Lord the creator of heaven and earth king of kings who wasn't held there by the nails but out of love for you and for me. Then, after a while, the moment passes, and I think, right, now get on with living my life for God. Not as one alone who has to do it in my own strength, but as one who knows that Christ lives in me. We're going to reflect this together in song now so I ask the band uh, to come up and uh, get set for the next song and as they do so I'll lead us in prayer dear heavenly father we thank you so much uh, for your love for us that you might send uh, Jesus Christ your son into this world to give himself for our sins to rescue us that every person who hears this great uh, good news, the gospel as we call it of Jesus, who responds in faith to you might know and be able to say, and not actually just know but to feel in their hearts that Jesus loves us, he knows everything about us, yet he still loves us and gave himself for us. 
We pray that for each one of us, uh, however we might appreciate this the most in the, week of he- in the week ahead, that we might do it and by your Holy Spirit in us, you might impress these great truths on our minds so that we might love you in return, we might rejoice, we might praise you, we might set about once again with a clear vision of living our lives now for you, that we have indeed died to living for ourselves. We've been rescued by Christ so that we might now live wholeheartedly for you. Please help us to do so as a church community. Please help us to do so personally. And uh, whether we uh, simply want to listen to the words up on screen or sing with great heart now, uh, please impress these great truths on our minds that we can sing, that your love poured down on us from Jesus at the cross and that he lives in us today by the power of the Holy Spirit for your glory. We ask all of this in Jesus' precious and very powerful name. Amen.